Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dinner is served. That's right, we're talking Season 1, Episode 6, Entree, on Dish by Dish. Well, greetings and salutations, Internet. It's your old pal, Patrick Hamilton, coming to you once again from a, a very lovely dinner table in Baltimore. This is Dish by Dish, the uh, Hannibal re- re- uh, the Hannibal Rewatch Project, brought to you by Kill by Kill. And as always, there's only one person I trust that if I'm trying to skewer someone with multiple sharp medical instruments... She'll hand me a couple so I don't have to go across the room. The one, the only, Gina Radcliffe. How are you doing today, Gina? I'm good. You know, I'm there. I'm, I'm, you know, poking people's eyeballs out with my thumbs. I'm just, you know, <laughs> we're making this a real team effort. Real deep scoop on that eyeball gouge from Dr. Alex Chilton. No, wait a second. It's not Chilton. It's Abel. There's too many doctors on this fucking show. It's Frederick. <laughs> Abel Alex, Alex Chilton is a singer in real life. <laughs> Patrick. Uh, my God. Listen, Frederick Gina, Chilton. The sky is orange here. Okay. Shit's going sideways on the West Coast. Well, all right. That's that's fair. <laughs> all right. This may well, be our last episode. So we'll make it a good one. <laughs> yes. Uh, fingers crossed. So I don't want to alarm you, Gina, but we're having an old friend for dinner. That's right. You know him as the co-host of Travolta Cage with his uh, co-host Nathan Rabin. He's the founder and editor of ch- editor in chief of the Spool, and of course, he's a kill by kill returning champion. The one, the only, Clint Worthington. How are you doing today, sir? Oh, I'm doing wonderful. It feels like we're all a bunch of psychopaths helping each other out. <laughs> It just, really does. Just smiling knowingly at each other while we look little, you know, look over our glasses of wine. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, now that I've rewatched these episodes, definitely, Gina, real quick heads up, I'm going to remodel the spool after tattlecrime.com. Excellent. Okay. Excellent. On the forefront of web design, it yes. really pops. Real web 1.5 shit <laughs> going on with tattlecrime.com. Again, not sure how she's able to afford all of those not attractive clothes. She looks like a cartoon cat burglar and every time she turns up. <laughs> yeah, it's that real Carrie Bradshaw being able to make a living blogging uh, sort of in Sex in the City vibe. Yeah, I don't understand how title crime equals dollar sign, dollar sign, dollar sign. It doesn't look like there's ads on the site necessarily. Like No. Yeah. What is her Google AdSense looking like? No, not no real like boner pill uh, <laughs> banners at the top. <laughs> what must her clickbait at the bottom really be? I, you, know, right. you won't believe what this serial killer looks like now. She just does a bunch of like affiliate links. <laughs> She's on a, a web ring. Um, <laughs> She's not a good reporter, but damn, is, does she can can she do SEO? <laughs> That's right. Um, so here we are. It's episode six entitled Entree. And I have to assume part of the reason why this is the Entree is because deep down, this was what I think a, a fair amount of people assumed Hannibal was going to be from the jump. It's going to be all Silence of the Lambs references all the time. But it's coming at it in such a completely different way 
that it defies all of those expectations while also giving you a lot of things that you kind of would want. Yeah, it's very interesting to see, you know, because the first five episodes of the show, you're so surprised at how how strange and odd this is. And then along comes episode six, and it feels like at a certain point, the producers are like, hmm, we do need someone talking in measured tones in a blue jumpsuit through bars <laughs> and taunting um, a young female FBI agent or something like that. Um, yeah. And yeah, so we need to get those stylistic uh, comparisons to the most famous iteration of this thing. Yeah, we we built a jail set. We need to use this at some point. Yeah. And it looks we, like it's from the future. We, we need we need somebody to implausibly pretend that they're dead so yeah. that they can escape pro- while while going, undergoing medical treatment. Yeah, and yeah. Is able to dig out a piece of metal is from able? a small slit in their hand. Is that what's going on there? Yeah, he like I guess at dinner he broke a fork tine, cut open a little slit into his hand, tucked it into his hand. Heaven knows how he got it out. I would just lose it it in my hand. It just doesn't like popping it out like nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Like you have like like a buck ticket in your pocket. (laughs) (laughs) He just pops it out like uh, one of those AirPods. You just boop. And it's right in his hand. <laughs> and I love, I love how when when Will later reasonably asks, "Well, what was a nurse in this high security facility doing with this patient, treating this patient all by herself?" And Doctor Chilton's like, "Yeah, well, you know, the security wasn't that great. <laughs> <laughs> like, he was a model inmate. <laughs> you think he's the Chesapeake Ripper?" <laughs> Send one guy. The real answer is, I would have loved the brutal honesty of him just go, turning around and going, "We had to set up the set piece." <laughs> Listen, it it was a it was a gap in the shifts. Like yeah. someone was coming off, someone's going Cut on. Cutbacks, it's budget stuff, you know. Yeah, like people are punching in. They're getting their uniform from the dry cleaner. Or they're and Lord knows we room. weren't going to cut my suit's budget. So. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so it starts off with, uh, Dr. Abel Gideon, uh, as he, uh, decides to, <laughs> decides to, I don't know why he decides to do this. It's just, it's time. Like the plot needs him to do this. So he pretends to be dead as L7 asked us all to do and goes to the, the facility's medical, uh, center, uh, which is unpopulated by anyone, but one nurse. And he gets out of his cuffs, digs himself a nice thumb full of eyeball, and sticks a whole bunch of sharp medical instruments into this poor lady uh, until she is D-E-A-D dead. Yeah, like, and then, you know, of course, that prompts, you know, uh, Jack Crawford and and Will Graham to go there. um, And they meet Dr. Chilton, uh, played by the inimitable uh, besuited Raul Esparza, who I think at the same time was on SVU. So just basically NBC was paying Raul Esparza so much money to just wear fancy suits and smirk um, for like several years. And I was there for every single second of it. (laughs) We get a whole new batch of man meat in this episode. Company zone. Company zone, Raul Esparza. (laughs) And Eddie Izzard in there just for the Izzard heads. Oh yeah, Eddie Eddie Izzard try, trying one of those British actor attempts at an American accent where he just uh, doesn't sound like he's from anywhere. Yeah. Well, I mean, and Hugh Dancy kind of gets gets into that uh, territory as well sometimes. I mean, although it's more seamless than like you would expect. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Asparza's Chilton is 
top notch and it's that's beautiful it's one of the things i'm really looking forward to in this rewatch is like his character's journey on the show (laughs) he goes through so much he's really he's there as a giant punching bag and i kind of love it like um chilton's always been portrayed as that overconfident fraud but then asparza adds like an operatic pomposity that he's so thirsty for recognition and it just makes you hate him even more than the movie versions. Right. He's such a great contrast to Hannibal, who is so effortlessly stylish in this, right? You know, yeah. he wears those suits, but it, there is this like down to earth nature about him. It's it's all so matter of fact with him. It just feels it oozes naturally out of his pores. Uh, but you can feel Chilton kind of trying to be Hannibal. Yeah. Um, that have that sense of like Baroque aesthetic and everything else. And he really thinks he's the stylish guy, but yeah, you can see him for the, the flim flam man that he kind of is that, that weird smirk and sort of, especially how much more obvious throughout the episode it becomes that like, he kind of hypnotized Abel Gideon into like confessing to be the, the, the Chesapeake Ripper, or at least like convinced him in some way yeah. or, you know, just for the sake of his own career. And cause he's so jealous because when alana and jack are in the room with him he's he's not only jealous of what hannibal's putting out but that alana and jack like get shit done and he's stuck in this place where he's never really going to accomplish anything yeah he's an administrator yeah and he just he wants to be them he wants to be in the action he wants to be deep in the shit he's very shallow and you know you can tell he wants something he can't do. He's not equipped for it. So he creates a situation that makes it appear as if he's done something. And what he's done is put himself on a dinner plate. Not now, but eventually. Yeah, he, he just he just wanted to get himself in the cover of Psychiatrist Weekly. <laughs> yeah, he wants Everyone the plaudits, wants he wants the credits. And you can feel that dynamic in the room with with uh, with uh, with Will and Alana and even Hannibal. Um, you can feel him sort of like, you know, we'll talk about Dan Fogler next episode, but I feel like he, to a certain extent, also idolizes Hannibal. And you can see him like trying to fit in and trying to be like one of the gang. And there's always this divide because he's definitely not up to their level. No, he's he's not equipped for it. He just in in this sort of chess match that's going on, he doesn't understand that he's uh, he thinks he's making his own moves, but he's like one pawn moving another. He's so outside of the decision making mechanics here that he is literally just putting himself out there to get taken out. And Hannibal just sees it for what it is and says, you know. You you push this guy to do something, and I'm not against it. Like I'm just gonna <laughs> let you know, I see you for what you are, and I see what you're doing. And while other people will tell you it's unprofessional and stupid, I know this, but I won't say it out loud. <laughs> right. I'm not judging you or anything. I'm totally judging you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's just, you know, for a show about everyone's hidden motivations and everyone's, you know, deep-seated insecurities and the mental complexity of what everyone's going through, Chilton is refreshingly surface. Like, he really thinks he's being sly, but you can see his motivations from a mile away. He is the grape. 
that it, that yeah, Hannibal right. breaks out. He's the same on the inside as he is on the outside. I mean, what is Hannibal without a forced food or animal metaphor? <laughs> With the Norton grape. The Norton exactly grape. What it say, the, exactly the same color on the inside as it is on the outside. A grape <laughs> with nothing to hide. TV. <laughs> when I look at grapes, I, I'm very suspicious because there's something on the inside that I don't get. And yeah. hiding it. What are these grapes thinking? I know. Well, you <laughs> what know, they, that what old. What do they ur- say about me when I'm not in the kitchen? Right. It's uh, that old urban legend about the, you know, when you went trick or treating in the 70s and people would hide uh, razor blades and all the grapes they would uh, give out <laughs> to the kids. Happened to me four times. I know. <laughs> it's, it's any wonder you can still talk into a microphone. That's why I don't have any fingers. Oh, no. <laughs> Um, but should we talk about the food? Because there is like a lovely little meal that happens. Absolutely. Um, That's one of the things we love to do here is sort of dissect the meal that we have in front of us. Yeah. They're serving up tongue, tee hee, tee hee. <laughs> in, on papillote, which is that, is that a technique either of you have used? In paper, yes. Yeah, I, yeah. I, mostly fish because it, yeah. it, it can delicately steam something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I've never done... Uh, a red meat in it and tongue is one thing that you have to cook enough to really tenderize it because it is a muscle that is well used you know by those of us who can really use their tongue i mine was is probably like baby food because of my enunciation problems <laughs> right um but yeah i've cooked things on papio before and yeah it's like usually like fish you know throw, throw some lemon slice but it's always really nice for presentation too and of course it's always you know part of the theatricality of hannibal's presentations so it's nice to get this like elegant but simple one out of the way early so that there's the more ornate stuff later yes. um but yeah i really dug that little like thing the the meal isn't as big a part of the episode as other episodes um but and yet it's very that. symbolic because it's lamb tongue and yeah. we have so many Silence of the Lambs parallel lives things happening here where we learn that Jack Crawford has used the trick of uh, bringing up an agent in training and having her do some leg dangerous leg work, uh, almost like dangling her out as bait in this particular case. And so we then meet uh, Miriam Lass, uh, played by uh, Anna Chomsky. Who, yeah, who is definitely like the Clary Starling to Abel Gideon's Hannibal. Like yes. this is where like the Silence of the Lamb par- parallels really like she come into play. She kind of looks like her a little bit. Like the, I mean, obviously you you intentionally. Yes. Yeah. When I was first the first watch through the show, when I really wasn't paying attention, I was like, oh, are they bringing Clarice this early? But yeah, and so we we get to see the ways um, Jack Crawford sort of has a history with bringing in these outside consultants and uh, or these outside people and kind of using their admiration of him or using their skills like for his own ends. And this is one time that haunted him where it really backfired and she ended up, you know, missing as far as we know, missing presumed dead as as far as he knew, which uh, makes it doubly complicated when he starts getting phone calls at like three in the morning with uh, Miriam Lass saying, I'm so scared, you know, help me, help me, help me. And it's like a recording of her voice as she was being killed by the Ripper. Yeah. And oh, my God, it's so good. 
Um, I do love the scene the next morning when he's talking with everyone else about like whether or not that was real and like Z is just not having it. He's going, like, look, I mean, you were probably dreaming. You were probably just waking up. And he's like, I, he like literally threatens violence upon Z for for calling him out this hard. And he makes a claim that will go on to be disproven multiple, not only in this episode, but in the next episode as well, where he says, I know the difference between when I'm awake and when I'm asleep. He yeah. doesn't. Not and the dream logic of this show. No, no, no. He, he's just, he's too wrapped up in it. And so you begin to understand how his imagination can get away with him as opposed to how Will enters a trance state to put his imagination to work. His is more on the edge of sleep, I think. And we finally kind of get to see what Jack's secret weapon is, how he, quote unquote, is the guru. Yeah, I don't know. I don't really know what to, to say about that other than like, you know, the flashbacks are very, very interesting. I really appreciate seeing that parallel between the way he treats Miriam and the way he treats Will. Like you can see that there's kind of a past. Like, I feel like the way he let down Miriam informs a lot of how he treats Will, where yeah. there is still that temptation to use his gifts, but like a little more awareness of like his mental well-being and everything. Because we were reaching the point in the first season, especially where the the strain of these gruesome crime scenes is starting to break down Will's psychotic psychological fabric. Um, and I think that's very, very interesting that we're in this spot and now we see the way Jack plays into it. Yeah, he's beginning to lose time. And the, the idea of losing time will take on greater and greater and greater meaning. Mm -hmm. Let's go back and talk about the editor-in-chief of Tattler Crime or whatever the fuck is called. <laughs> Tattlecrime.com, Patrick. Come murder, on. Murder, Murderstab.biz. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, we're a little hard on the Freddie Lowndes character. I don't like her. I don't like her. I don't get it. I don't, I don't, I don't get it. It's not, I don't know if it's particularly that this, this actress's fault or that they're not entirely sure how to use her, but they do give her one of my favorite lines that has ever been uttered on this program. And it's in this episode when she says not to snap bubblegum and crack wise, like that is fucking good. If I wrote that, I would push away from the desk throw the paper in the air and you would hear the guitar riff go down 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 yeah i line. mean well i mean as will describes it, you know she is obnoxious and her her style is distasteful and that means she's disliked and like i mean i th again it's sort of a holdover again from the the thomas harris stuff where she's like a hard-boiled tabloid reporter and how do you modernize that you make her a crime blogger uh, i feel like now if they, if it had made been made like five years later hannibal would have made her a true crime podcaster oh yeah yeah, yeah. we mentioned that oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah totally yeah yeah so i feel like there is that sense of entitlement you kind of have to have that antagonist i think the the choice to turn freddie lounge from like a schlubby philip seymour hoffman type to like this wilier um, you know, this wily or redhead. I think it fits the sort of sexier aesthetic of the show. Like everything is grimly beautiful in Hannibal for whatever reason. Um, it also continues Brian Fuller's tradition of naming women male names, um, which happens a lot and stuff because there's yeah. Freddie Lowndes, there's Michael Burnham, even though it's an, a, an, adapt, an adaptation of a previous character. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I agree that she's not one of the strongest characters on the show, but I think she has her place. 
Yeah. It's um it's a real interesting dynamic at play here because you have this parallel silence of the lambs thing happening and you kind of wonder what is Hannibal making out of this? Like Jack's idea of of bringing Freddie Lowndes in here is to jab at the Chesapeake River, which he does not know as Hannibal, and try to goose him into doing something. And Hannibal doesn't really work like that. He does the poking. And what none of these people know is that Hannibal is a big fan of poking and provoking people into doing shit. So you begin to have a new phase here where it parallel the the situation here with with uh, Abel parallels what Hannibal is trying to do to Jack, which is push him into a new phase of loss. He's trying to make him accept the idea that he will not have his wife. It's so fucking weird to parallel silence of the lambs with, you know what? Life isn't permanent and you're angry now, but you have to get past angry into another phase of loss. And it fucking works. How is that possible? <laughs> I know. And and yet, you know, I don't know whether it's Mads Mikkelsen or just like the strange mercurial nature of Hannibal, but I can't help but wonder that like at the same time that he is definitely manipulating Jack into the, this new phase, like you say, I can't help but feel a glimmer of like, genuinely wanting to help jack get through this oh yeah yeah which it's it's so interesting to see him play both of those angles at the same time that are at once contradictory and yet feel wholly connected to who hannibal is as a person i think yeah i mean it definitely is interesting to he shows some you know faint glimmer of humanity on occasion Mm -hmm. like i do think on a fundamental level there there is a part of hannibal that has affection for alana and jack and will um, but obviously, you know, it can't get in the way of his grander um, aesthetic desires. You know what I mean? So, yeah. yeah so th- those scenes, scenes like that are what really, really attract me to this show. And why, like, I think a few years ago when I first started writing for Consequence of Sound, which is another site that I write for regularly, we did a breakdown comparing three – me and two other writers compared um, the Brian Cox, Anthony Hopkins, and Mads Mikkelsen Hannibals to see who was better. And I took Mads Mikkelsen's side. Um, and I think just the, it's just the I don't know, the the and sort of the all encompassing nature of his aesthetic sensibility, like Mads Mikkelsen is the Baroque aesthete. He's the one who ties himself up in all this frippery of fine dining and haute cuisine and haute couture mm-hmm. um, and that kind of stuff. And it just it feels like it's a it's a really novel way to depict this kind of sociopathy where it is all about the surface aesthetic and the beauty within that. Um, and yeah, I think the scenes like that really hammer that home. Yeah. It's, I think we'll, we'll see it actually demo. I, I, I will, I will leave it there only because I think we're really going to see a lot of this demonstrated mm-hmm. in episode seven. It be, this mm-hmm. is like, we're bringing out this meal and episode seven is this, weird distaff sequel (laughs) a direct sequel even though um because it's a continuous plot like things carry over but there's this real interesting dynamic of hannibal where it's not really an effort to humanize him because 
he's always been inherently human, but it's that he's not just a cannibal. (laughs) (laughs) And even though that's the loudest thing about him, it's not the only thing about him. He does genuinely care. His version of caring is not healthy and it is not wise, but it is caring. And I think it wasn't really the goal of the show. I think it's the byproduct of the way they approached the material. I think I think it was partially the goal of the show. I mean, I mean, you know, you're you are you're mostly seeing him before the events of the movies that made him famous and right you know, all we really knew of him before was you know he was this guy in a cage and you know everything was was told rather than shown about yeah. what kind of person mm-hmm. he was and what he did and all and i think that this you know giving him more dimension with the whole like Clint was saying like being very refined in his you know in his cooking and his mannerisms and his entertainment you know if you look up any sort of research of like serial killers that's not very that's not very common you know a lot of times they tend to be like hulking ogres and like and like you know who who you know tend to live very you know uh what happens when your serial killer is a rich hot guy yeah i mean i need i need more lookers for my serial killers who really know who really know how to make me some pate <laughs> Yeah, uh, why aren't serial killers better in the kitchen? Why aren't they dressing better? Yeah, you know, I mean, think, think about the, it this way: like, yeah. what does people always point out about Ted Bundy? Oh, he was so good looking, and he was really stunningly average looking. But for yeah. a serial killer, he was a stone fox. Yeah, on the spectrum and, 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 of serial killers, and that is why you get like Zac Efron playing him in movies. <laughs> I just want like a, a queer eye show, but for serial killers, like just just Jonathan Van Ness going, "Honey, you, we got to spruce up this look, girl." Like this sort of uh, you know day manager at a Denny's, this isn't happening. You cannot honey. you like, cannot wear those aviator glasses anymore. Yeah, <laughs> you gotta remember get to keep your French tuck while you're stabbing. Um, You've been stuck in here for too long. Look at all of these pounds and pounds of paper against the government you can't just write about it you gotta do something about it <laughs> you can like karamo sitting him down for a heart to heart about achieving his dreams <laughs> oh, i love it Listen. oh and it, oh man antony and hannibal oh, oh, oh that would be great like he, hannibal it would be one of those episodes where antony steps back because like this is the one area where like they know what they're doing yeah um yeah it would be more like, well, are, are we sure we're using? Even though Anthony has the eyes correctly. of a serial killer, let's like be <laughs> clear about that. Like, I love Anthony, but he's very intense. Yeah. Like, what are you doing with all these heads in the refrigerator? I know why you're keeping them because you can't, you don't want to part with them. But we also have to organize the heads. You know what I'm saying? Does this spark joy? Um, <laughs> I was say, Wait, different show. Bob, Bobby's just Bobby's just redecorating his murder shed. Oh, God. You see the like panning, and there's like blood, but then it like fades to a beautiful ornate. Yeah, it's a patina. It's beautiful. Yeah. Listen, you also want to lure your victims in. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You don't want to just keep them here with chains. You want to keep them here because they love it. <laughs> and you know the great thing is that human blood is a great moisturizer. <laughs> Hey, it's worked for vampires for, for a little dabble, do ya? 
Oh my god! All right, we hit we hit gold. We finally yes. round it. Make this show Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? They've got nothing else going on, and apparently all the money in the world. So why not? Yeah, exactly. Uh, either that, or this is a, an SNL sketch that no one will ever do. No. Um, so, any final thoughts about Entree? No. I mean, I guess if I, you know, there's the flashback where we find out that Hannibal's the Chesapeake Ripper, but like we know that, but it's, yeah. you know, it's, but it's chilling to see, um, Anna Shlomsky sort of figure that out. Um, this and like it's the, funny, the, I was rereading the, the Wikipedia plot description because she, she finds out because she finds that drawing of of the of the person stabbed in the same way that their the body was stabbed, and the episode synopsis calls it the wound man but i read it as the wound man and i didn't know what that <laughs> meant <laughs> this is the first time we've seen him actually kill someone on screen right because I mean, it was implied with the guy he was chasing after uh and telling jack and at least attacking was, someone because rabbit. he just yeah this is the unconscious. first time we see him apply hands right right, right. to yeah. someone get dirty yeah whereas the previous the rabbit who didn't run fast enough like it's implied that we're from his POV in that in that sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, so that just about does it. But of course, of course, before we go, we have to choose our own death venture where we decide of the deaths presented in this episode, uh, which one would you choose and why? And it's more of a location-based problem here this time. We have you can have your eyes gouged out and you're mounted on uh, sharpened medical instruments after death. Or you can be impaled and mounted on various metal rods before death in a garage. And Clint, as our guest, I turn to you for your answer first. Well, my first my question is how did those medic how did the IV stand get so sharp? He kind of pulls it out. It's, it's implied there's but, a lot of brute force going on. Right, but still like you even sort of see that it's like sharpened to a point. And I'm like, yeah. did it come like that? Like <laughs> <laughs> what medical supply store is creating this? Um, man, I would have to say the garage, just because the the eye, the gouging out of the eyes thing is so visceral, and that's yeah. something so terrifying. That's like one of my worst nightmares is having my eyes popped out of my head. I, I'd still be alive. So I mean, I, anything else besides that, I'll take. I agree, but you're alive for the rebar placing through your spleen. Like, yeah, it's, but at least I'll be able to see. <laughs> well, that's because it's a visual feast. Exactly, it's a visual feast, and you know what? I can handle the worst things happening to me as long as I can see what's going on. Yeah, I do wonder what what mechanic problem he was so. This mechanic was so rude. He's like, "Oh, your card goes in the, in my serial killer final fight." The Rolodex, yeah. <laughs> like I you, listen, I found better prices for those tires. I'm gonna eat you. Look, it was before Yelp. We, you know, we only had so much recourse against like people who wronged us. In right. A the, o- the only thing we had was killing and eating the people who wronged us in business. This Thank was God for the internet. Really, <laughs> <laughs> it solved so many problems. All right, Gina, what say you? Well, do we do we know how um, uh, Miriam dies? Because he just find like her severed arm. Uh, spoiler alert! I don't. She's, we don't know that she's dead. Yeah. That's yeah. true. That's true. Um gosh, I don't know. I guess I have to go with 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 the skewered in the garage as well. Mostly again, okay. yeah, the the whole prolonging of the uh the death of the the nurse pretty gruesome. 
Yeah. But she also, here's the thing. I'm going to choose the, the nurse because I don't want to see what's coming. I also like, I, she dies quicker. Um, That's probably true. Uh, because spoiler alert, uh, Dr. Abel Gideon is not the Chesapeake Ripper. Uh, the problem I have with that nurse death is that she's, uh, she decides not to scream as like, well, a, he, I, he, he punched her in the throat. Oh, I thought he just punched her in the face. He no, punched no, no, her, no. He like, he liked the thing with the heel of his hand and they like in her, well, I mean, they showed what Will was doing it. Yeah. And he like, he did uh, the thing yeah. with the, putting the heel of his hand in her, in her, in her, in the middle of her throat. Uh, by the way, what a gratuitous way to get uh, Hugh Dancy's shirt open. <laughs> that, Whatever that it teased takes. sternum. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it, it's I, more shirtless uh, Will uh, Dancy, less of him in his beige uh, pajamas by mash wear. I don't. <laughs> I don't like any part of his sleep ensemble. He he's, he dresses like like a twelve year old boy who's going through puberty and does not want to acknowledge it. <laughs> he doesn't yeah. like his body. <laughs> he doesn't like I'm where so the hair ugly. is coming out now. <laughs> Stop looking at me! <laughs> I can't handle this. This attention. I'm sleepwalking. Stop. Good <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go to Minnesota and fight the Shrike. <laughs> now we're just all Nick Kroll characters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they really missed the boat on, on making, <laughs> making Nick Kroll the lead of Hannibal. That really yeah. should oh my have God. been proposed. He just plays everybody. Every character yeah. is played by Nick Kroll. <laughs> Beautiful. Netflix, come at us. Let's yeah. redo just, all just, of Hannibal with Nick Kroll. We're just, throwing out, Hannibal. We're just throwing out all these ideas to the wolves. <laughs> know, right? well, you know, he's where we already signed up for a million seasons of Big Mouth. Just like throw a little more money for Hannibal. <laughs> I, he, um, but that's like uh, it's studio stuff. Like, what is he doing with his actual time? Like, get out there and, and recreate yeah. Hannibal already. Exactly. All right. Well, that, that just about does it. Um, uh, Clint, where can people find you out here in these big, bad internets? Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at Clint Worthing, where I will share stuff from The Spool, which you can find at thespool.net. The lovely Gina is my second in command there. And uh, I'm also a senior writer at Consequence of Sound. You can find my reviews there at consequenceofsound.net. And also uh, headlines just about every which where, from Vulture to StarTrek.com to The Takeout. And I also co-host the podcast Effenbirds Presents Travolta Cage with my good friend, the pop culture writer extraordinaire Nathan Rabin, where we go through the filmographies in tandem of John Travolta and Nicolas Cage. The day I, we record this, I just we just dropped our episode on Pulp Fiction and Guarding Tess. <laughs> Two what it was double feature. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> it's very rare for a cage movie to lose in a lineup. I was going to say, that's got to be unusual to have the Travolta movie be better than the cage movie. Well, it's wild yeah. that like Guarding Tess is kind of sweet for the first two acts, and then it turns into like a serial killer thriller <laughs> where yes. Shirley MacLaine's out of commission for 20 minutes. And I'm like, no, you. it's like benching your star quarterback. Yeah, it should be quarter. Stopper My Mom works. Will Shoot presidential edition and she <laughs> takes one of those wasps to the neck like in in that snake movie what is that snake movie what's uh, the snake movie anaconda anaconda yeah oh, wow. oh that snake movie <laughs> 
It is that snake movie. How many other snake, snake movies movie. do you know about? <laughs> yeah. It's not the Blood Orchid one. It's the, the first one. Now I'm having trouble thinking of other snake movies, except for like... Oh, yeah, with Dirk uh, Benedict, where he turns yeah. into a, a big man snake. And you also have Spasms, which and I Lair, haven't seen. Lair of the White Worm. Lair of the White Worm. Um, there's that one snake movie that is like a hostage drama where they drop a black mamba into the middle of it because they give the kid who they take hostage a black mamba mistakenly. What? Sure. Okay. Are it's you, a real movie. Are you I just making that up you. off the top of your head? <laughs> yeah, I'm not convinced that's real. <laughs> Wait a second, I'm actually Listeners, working this up. Uh, come at us with your, all your movies about snakes that we forgot on this podcast. <laughs> all I'm coming up is, is Black Mom. No, this is a real movie. Oh, damn it. Uh, <laughs> uh, I can edit this together. I guess while we're while we're waiting, uh, I do want to point out the episodes are directed by Michael Reimer, um, who did a lot of Battlestar Galactica. So there's that. No, there is that. Yeah. Um. Uh, yeah, okay. Let's see. Oliver Reed... Is in it, and he's drunk through most of it. Snake movie. It's going to come up with two snake movies. One is Spasms, <laughs> and the other is Venom. Venom with Oliver Reed and Klaus Kinski, who apparently hated one another. And just, Tom Hardy. <laughs> eating a lobster. And they they decide they come up with a kidnapping plot where the the Oliver Reed's girlfriend is uh, in charge in charge of this kid in this very rich family in Britain. And they kidnap him and they get they get holed up inside the house. And the kid's been given a black mamba snake by mistake. And then Nicole (laughs) Williamson is outside playing the police. I'm still convinced you're making this up. It's a real movie from 1981. He he loves pets. He, He has various pets and he finally convinces his mom to let him have a snake. So he goes to the pet store and they give him this dangerous dangerous venomous snake by mistake and it gets out and it slowly kills off the kidnappers one by one that's like your until... kid go, that's like you go you take your kid to the pet store to get a dog and they give you a wolf <laughs> pretty much yes <laughs> on accident and then while oliver reed gets bitten in the dick by a snake yikes <laughs> it's fantastic <laughs> Who wouldn't want to watch a movie where Oliver Reed gets it in the dick by snake? Now you it's mentioned, free now on Tubi right now. Now we're talking about snake movies. There was there was like a sci-fi movie which like a giant cobra like attacks people. I do I do recall turning this on at three o'clock in the morning, unable to sleep. It's yeah. possible. It, it's possible. I imagine that though. Right. And so that draws to a close. Snake by snake, our new <laughs> snake movie. <laughs> But you have to Side spell project. it S-N-E-K. <laughs> hiss by hiss. I, hiss, I, by hiss. We're workshopping it. We're, yeah. We'll figure it out eventually. Uh, so for myself, for Clint, and for Gina, bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Don't speak for me. <laughs> <laughs>